Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. New York Times, Dateline, October 4th, 1943. Danish Jews pour across to Sweden. Many refugees are persuaded through Jutland. 1,600 already reported arrested. Stockholm, Sweden, October 3rd. Fleeing the Gestapo terror introduced in Denmark on Tuesday, more than 1,000 Danish Jews reached Sweden, most of them by last night. Braving the icy Orsland, Jewish refugees of all ages and condition arrived on the Swedish coast. Some even swam the strait, two miles wide at its narrowest. Others were rowed across by Danish fishermen who charged $375 to $750 for the passage. Not all those who have tried to cross have succeeded. It is thought probable that most swimmers were seized by cramps and sank. Others crossing in boats were surprised by German Navy mosquito crafts patrolling the straits and their boats were sunk by gunfire. The refugees said that when the Gestapo intruded on their New Year celebration, some Jews had resisted and both sides had many, many killed. Municipal authorities and Red Cross branches in the coastal communities in southern Sweden are lodging and feeding the refugees in schools and other available buildings. Many are destitute. Copenhagen reports said that the Gestapo had concentrated on poor Jews, apparently giving those who could afford a huge ransom a chance to negotiate. Travelers reaching Sweden tonight said that Heimlich Himmler had arrived in Copenhagen to superintend the roundup of the Jews, but this has not been confirmed by any other sources. Welcome everybody to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and Jeff is not with us tonight. He is out doing whatever he does when he's not here. But uh, we do have Henry Sledge once again, and returning to the show, it's been a year or two, um, I think he was on season one, Brian Dimitrovich. Sir, how are you doing tonight? Good, good. How are you guys doing? Good. Real quick, you know, Henry, we talk about a lot of books on this podcast, and people listen like, well, where does he get a New York Times story for October 3rd, 1943? One of the coolest Christmas presents anyone ever got me when I worked in radio, uh, the host of the show I produced the stan haney show he got me this book for christmas and he's like there's this is literally every single story ever published in the new york times from 1938 to the end of the war that had anything to do with world war ii and wow. i and i used to do this occasionally i want to start doing it more is i'll go through here say okay what day is this podcast going to air or what day we record it and i'll find a new story from that day that isn't three pages long and so that was what was going on on this day in 1943 and think about that for a second you're a bunch of Jews out running the Gestapo. You get to near Sweden. There's an icy river. Your options are to swim. And as you heard, most of them died from cramps. But there's some fishermen there who will happily take you across for $350 to $750, 1943 money. That is insane. Inflation. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But uh, anyhow, so... Um, I am beat. I am sore. Yesterday was a weird day for me. Um, about five months ago, and we don't talk about too much on this podcast, but just to give you guys an idea where I'm at. Five months ago, I signed up for an OCR race that I've forgotten all about. It was only a 5K, and I joke it's kind of like you're my first OCR, which is obstacle course racing, That if you guys aren't familiar. I do savage races, but this one's called Rugged Maniac. Here's my medal. It was up in Tampa. Three miles, 25 obstacles, but since they were easier obstacles quote-unquote i was able to actually do them all in um the first time and finish the race in 33 minutes but i had to get up at 5 30 in the morning leave cape coral at six get there in order to warm up run a mile and get to my wave time did all that drove back home two hours ate lunch and then i had forgotten that i just kind of got in touch with a guy i went to high school with in grove city ohio who joined the marines he was a tank commander served uh three tours in iraq and then a tour in afghanistan um had been blown up his tanks blown up by ieds multiple times um he finally then he before retiring he joined the wounded warriors division has nothing to do with the wounded warriors project but the wounded warriors division and then retired out of there and so now he lives in northport which is only 30 minutes from where i live which is crazy that we all grew up in ohio then moved down here and so mm -hmm. after getting home doing this obstacle course race being super tired 
he came down with his kayak and then we went kayak fishing for four hours. And it was so weird to see someone I hadn't seen since June 6, 1997. But uh, we had a good time. I went out and caught a two and a half pounder and then got up today, was tired. Me and the wife went out kayaking again today. And I was about to say, I thought I saw you post something on Facebook. You were on the water again. I In Cape Coral, we have over 5,000 miles of canals. Uh, yeah. There, okay. used, there used to be a joke uh, back in the day about people selling swampland in Florida. That's mm-hmm. here. Um, Cape Coral was developed by two brothers who actually started in the, um, I was going to say pharmaceutical, but cosmetic industry. And so they decided, hey, land development's where it's at. And so they came down to Cape Coral, Florida, paid to dig a bunch of trenches, drained the place, started selling some land, made some money. And there's a great book called Redneck Riviera. Um, Not to get off topic of World War II, but hey, what the hell. Then they decided, you know what? This worked pretty well, but our, um, our profit margins weren't quite where we'd like them to be. So then they bought up an area that has now been called um, River Ranch Acres. They basically took out some trees, put in some service roads, and then went up to Ohio, Cleveland, and New Jersey and sold the property as being part of a fully developed city, which it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then long story short, the property got taken over and turned into a private hunting facility. And the author of that book went to claim his dad's land, built a cabin. His cabin was shot up, burnt down. His Jeep was shot up, burnt down. Long story short, the state of Florida took over the property and people go hunting there now. But the Rosens brothers finally went to prison for just bamboozling people. But to answer your question, because we have so many canals, I have three fishable lakes within a mile from my house. So I can come home, load up the Mm -hmm. kayak and be out on the water in 15 minutes. And, and it's, uh, once you buy all the gear, don't need gas money to kayak. And so it's like, Hey, let's go out and do something that won't cost us anything. We'll have some fun and we'll get some vitamin D from the sunlight. So. I thought when I first got into this gig with you guys, you told me you were really into doing a lot of fishing and posting fishing videos. So that's I cool. just started. I just started fishing in April. I've caught more fish down here in April than I did all the times my dad took me out fishing in Ohio. We'd go on a pontoon boat and we'd go out at midnight. Oh, we're going to catch some blah, blah. We'd catch some catfish and all that, but never anything. I've caught in probably since April well to 100 bass down here. It's, we have so many of them. You can keep 15 a day under 16 inches. They just want to get rid of them all. Nice. How's your week going, Henry? Yeah, it's been good. Been pretty busy, but uh, we're getting ready to go to the beach next week. We're going to go down to Grayton Beach. So, uh that's going to be nice keeping my son or my son keeps me busy, I should say. So, uh, you know, it's, it's going pretty well. I've had some nice weather, but we had, it's gotten rainy yeah. over the last couple of days. So, uh, Brian, you're back on the show. And I know last night they aired an episode of world war two TV in which you were on and you were talking about John Basilone. And uh, you and I were talking last week about having you on the show. And then Jeff said, hey, I won't be able to come on this week. And I thought, well, what a perfect time to have Brian on because he wants to talk about John Baslow, which Jeff loves, but he's not here to hear it. So, haha. <laughs> so, uh, give us a little um, update about how you got hooked up with World War TV, uh, 2 TV. And then um, let's talk some John Baslow because with the exception of a little bit of what we talked about him with Jeff, um, we really haven't given him a whole lot of credit on this podcast. Yeah, uh, so a, a good friend of mine, uh, Paul Woodage, he's, uh, he started a tour company in Normandy uh, years ago, years ago. I want to say he's probably been well over 20 years in the Normandy area, and I've been to Normandy and, and touring with him over the years. And and then obviously um, COVID is, is driven to a lot of good, you know, digital media content. Mm-hmm. Um, he's always kind of had this idea uh, for, for something like this. And um, I, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the whole COVID thing really pushed his, his hand to do this and it's turned into something and he's had some phenomenal guests uh, over the last year. And uh, typically, I, I think I was actually like the first one to talk about the Pacific um, on his show because a lot of his stuff is ETO uh, centric, obviously being in that area. Sure. Uh, but there is this taste for for the Pacific that they, a lot of them don't know about. So So I kind of kicked that off uh i want to say it was last year sometime and then uh and then he's he's had some great shows on they actually did a live battlefield broadcast from hong kong from the battlefields of hong kong wow wow so that that 
the show that just came on, Brian, you said that was done about a year ago. No, no, that one was done live yesterday. That was my okay. third time on the show. The first show I did was on uh, Machine Guns. The second one I did was on the Battle of Alligator Creek. And then this one we focused on John Bazelon and Mitchell Page. Okay. Now, obviously, most of us are familiar with John Bazelon. Maybe before we get into the Bazelon talk, Mitchell Page, maybe not a, a name that a lot of people are familiar with. Give us a little bit of rundown on him. So Mitchell Page was, uh, he was a machine gunner. He was the same rank as John Bazalone. He was in H Company in, in uh, the 7th Marines. And um, he was about four miles um, away from John Bazalone's position. So again, for, for everybody to, to get up on their Guadalcanal history in a very short few sentences, Japanese start building an airfield on the island of Guadalcanal. 1st Marine Division lands there August 7th. And their entire mission is to take hold that airfield at all costs um let me let me stop you real quick yeah. um because one thing i just discovered because i've i've read strongman armed i've read um you know other guadalcanal books but i'm reading one right now the one i talked about last week about the battle for guadalcanal and one of the things that i didn't know and a lot of people don't talk about the japanese navy built or started to build that air that runway without talking to anybody the japanese army had no idea it was there the japanese higher-ups they just they were like the good thing for us and bad thing for the japanese their military branches kind of acted as in sovereign nations they kind of just did what they had the budget to do and right. so i'm reading this book and they're like yeah the navy just decided to build an airfield and it wasn't until the army japanese army found out about it that they said well crap this is a good strategic strategic strong point we got to get some guys down here to fortify it and so to me it's just absurd to think that you have a, a an empire with these branches of military who have their eyes set at least on a quarter world domination lined up with the germans and yet you have the navy building crap and doing stuff without telling the army we all know that you know the reports are always wrong. Oh, they they go in, get their butts kicked. Yeah, we sank uh, two destroyers and three um, aircraft carriers. <laughs> and so, thankfully for us, the, their egos got in the way, and their fear of being either ran out of office or forced to commit Harry Carey was so high that they just made crap up and did whatever the hell they wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, for for people that have served or be are part of military families. Here in America, obviously, there's rivalries, you know, the Army, Navy, you know, Marines, Air Force, everybody. Typically, when you get a lot of people from different branches, the, the ribbing starts. Uh, typically, like at a reenactment or a living history, we'll be sitting around a fire. I, you you kind of like back away sometimes. Sure. You know, conversations. But the, the, the Japanese Army and Navy truly hated each other with a yeah. past. Um, <laughs> I, I've heard it eclipse anything we're, we're aware of in our history. But to think about in peacetime, that's understandable. But here you are. You're the Japanese Empire. You guys are, are struggling for resources. <laughs> Metal's hard to come by. Oil is damn near gone, which is why they attacked us to begin with and started taking over all these properties because they need the natural resources to fuel their war. And you got the Navy. Okay, let's just clear some trees, um, use some diesel on our, <laughs> our equipment, and just build an airfield without even running it by anybody and seeing if maybe we can get some more equipment down here. To me, it's just staggering, especially in wartime, you know, after you did I, what you just done. I think I actually either, it may have been in Strongman Armed, which I'm going to finish here in the next day or so, when their airplanes were flying into Pearl Harbor, some of them actually had imported U.S. fuel in their tanks. <laughs> That's insane. I mean, not... Fully, yeah. Some Next, of it was there. That's crazy. Well, I mean, look what's going on now. I mean, <laughs> over in Afghanistan and and the Taliban and all that stuff. I mean, back then the global trade wasn't anywhere near what it is today. But here we are. But anyhow, yeah. as you were saying, Brian. Oh, uh, so what ends up happening is is um, there's there's a big there's a big push in August. Um, that's that's uh, the Battle of Alligator Creek uh, that takes place in September. There's another offensive uh, where the Japanese try to push through that uh, culminates to the Battle of Bloody Ridge or Edson's Ridge. And then in October is where the Japanese and, and, and America are, are all in. They, they are they are everybody is saying 
this is the definitive battle, um, which is it, it, it strikes people when they first hear that because you, you think like, well, there's still a chance and, and there's not. And, and that's what's always drawn me to this battle is, is that America could have lost this battle. Absolutely. Half a dozen, two dozen times. Um, it was constantly in the balance. Uh, the American government is is drawing up plans. They're drawing up speeches um, that for the demise of the first marine division is this going to be another baton um do we actually go to the table and start uh talking peace with the japanese at that point so so this is the criticality point of guadalcanal and in october um it's it's kind of everybody's all in and uh seventh marine regiment lands in september they actually don't land in august and um part of this is is, is mitchell page uh it, it, he's part of the seventh marines and mitchell page doesn't get a lot of attention and it's bizarre and I actually I had this conversation with Richard Frank and Richard Frank is has written arguably the, the greatest book yes. on the Battle Canal I mean it's yep. literally it's called the definitive account and I and I asked Richard Frank to say it there and I said just got it, it in the mail that, why is it that Bazalone like literally if you read the page story I said it's I believe that Page's story kind of starts intermixing in with Bazalone's story and, and like the, you know, picking up and running with the machine gun, you know, Bazalone does none of that. And, and, and I mean, literally he's laying in between two machine guns and he's rolling from machine gun to machine gun. He has a pistol and, and I'm not, I'm not taking away anything with Bazalone did, not, not, sure. least. but Page is literally on a steep ridge by himself, by himself. And um, he, he has no idea what's what's about to, to, to come up at him. Um, all Most of his men are, are all dead or, or wounded. He knows what's behind him. He knows the airfield. They, they're going to have a direct shot right to the airfield. And he decides to essentially lead a bayonet charge uh, down this hill with a water-cooled machine gun. Uh, you know, probably weighing around with the water and the ammo and everything, roughly about 50 pounds he's carrying. And he's able to pull together four or five guys. And and he just charges headlong into this Japanese column, just shooting away. And and it's enough to freak the Japanese out there to go, we don't know what the hell is coming down at us. And um, you know, for, for this, he's going to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, he, he His action takes place. 20 less than 24 hours after john Bazalone's action uh Bazalone's, uh on uh, the 24th or the 25th um page is on the 25th and the 26th and uh you know because that's what everybody always says like Bazalone's the first enlisted men to get the medal of honor i'm like yeah by about 20 hours <laughs> you know? but page is uh arguably uh, what, what he does is i think far more insane than, than I, Bazalone, uh does <clears throat> I read somewhere, and it may have been in Strongman Armed. Um, Henry might know because he's reading it now. I think Leggy covered him, that. Didn't Wasn't he the one who actually burnt his hands? They portrayed it, you know, that Baz Lone burned his hand, but it was actually Paige, right? Yeah, yeah, it was because Paige, I mean, they, they were ripping their guns, and, and, and he had to pick this thing up, and, and he does. He, as a matter of fact, uh, we just uh, worked with the American Legion. He's actually from, from the Pittsburgh area, uh, Charleroi to be exact. Um, and uh, over this summer, I, I worked with the American Legion, and we dedicated a memorial to him in his hometown, uh, which was kind of amazing to all of us. We're like, how the heck does Charlotte not have a have a monument to, to Mitchell Page? And um, got to meet some some Marines uh, that that knew Mitchell Page wow. and had photos uh, uh, when he was in Pittsburgh and he was at the American Legion talking. And there's photos of him with the scars still on his arms uh, from, from the, from the machine gun. I think Henry, to answer your question prior about the fact that Bazalone kind of got, you know, perhaps maybe his reputation got inflated. Obviously it's nothing that he did. I think maybe it was part of the quote unquote propaganda machine on our side. We got Bazalone going on tour. He's trying to raise war bonds. How better right. to get more people out than to just kind of take both these stories, mix them together and create, <clears throat> you know, we'll use Bazalone's face and name, and you know, create this superhero mentality just so we can sell more war bonds and get more money right. and, and supplies to back the you know back the effort. You know, history be damned. And it, you know, it might have been a thing where somebody thought that John Bassalone was a little more charismatic than Mitchell Page. You right. know, sometimes 
things break that way. You have one guy who just he's just got that air about him that, and somebody goes, "Hey, he's our guy. We can market that." Mm-hmm. And, and so, and yeah. like you, not to take anything away from either one of them. Sure, absolutely. And and I think too, you know, I, I've had this discussion before. I, I think it all depends on who's who's pushing it too. Uh, you know, it's like at, at, you know where I work at. You know, if you put in, you we have awards that are given out at the end of the year. Um, you know, managers will put in for the awards, and you know, certain managers will. You know, they're able to wordsmith things to to make things sound better. Um, you know, I'm sure this happens all across corporate America and then, you know, anything else. Um, that, that I've never encountered that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, it, yeah, or, what you got, you got Chesty Puller, uh, you know, that's already a Marine legend in his own right. Um, by right. the time the bottle canal hits that, you know, Chesty's going, no, it's my guy. I want the attention on my guy. And again, I'm not saying that this happened or, or anything, but it's still this, kind of mystery where you you know like basalone becomes it was already a household name yeah before it's not like you know obviously he goes into marine lore i mean after the heroic deeds and and hey, killed on iwo jima and can i read the last sentence of this chapter sure. 14 strongman arm absolutely it, it was the hush that comes upon the end of battle as eerie as that long white snake-like blister it ran from the fingertips to the forearm of platoon sergeant Mitchell Page. There you go. And you know, I was going to think we 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 as historians, and you know, especially people like me and Brian who do living history now, we kind of look at history as in you know done a certain way. It could have been as something as simple as somebody came down from the War Department saying, "Hey, uh, we're looking for somebody for a war drive, preferably a Medal of Honor recipient." And the person asked us, "said Um, what's his um?" First person came to his mind, "Um, that Baslone right. guy." It could have been something that yeah. simple. Give me him. <laughs> yeah, it could have just been. Oh, right. I I wrote up some papers two days ago. What was it? Um, yeah, it's like oh, what was that John Baslone. He he'll work. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been something that simple and, and non nefarious. We don't know. But right. again, not to take anything away from John Baslone. Oh, sure, no. not at all. No. Uh, it, it was like, well, like what I talked about on the show yesterday. So, you know, the, the, the narrative always is that there's, he's taking on 3000 Japanese and for some reason he's like, he's barefoot and, um, you know, he's, he's going three days without food and, you know, and it, this doesn't, this doesn't even happen. And, and he's actually going up against the, the ninth company of the 29th infantry regiment. And they, they're coming at him with 130 guys. Now, Bazelone only has four guys with him. So it's essentially, you know, five on 130, which is still insane. Absolutely. I'm, at that point, I'm probably needing a change of, uh, of clothes so at this point. I, I mean, hell, if it was like there's 20 guys coming at you, I would still be utterly terrified. Um, and, and uh, you know, again, what, what he does is, I mean, he keeps those guns going. He keeps the ammo coming. Alone, Bazelone, between his two guns that he fires on that right flank, Fires over sixty thousand rounds of ammunition just out of the two wow. guns. And how I many? Mean, that's from his own testimony. I mean, I, I, we were, we were able to actually come across his um, Medal of Honor testimony, and uh, you know, he just walks it down through of everything right. he fired and and what he did, and in uh, you know, again, just doing that at night. If you if you watch the show, I have some of the video of of his. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is just dense. Brian, have you ever heard of Joseph Alexander, Colonel Joseph Alexander? No. But he's, he wrote, he wrote uh, Storm Landings. He wrote Utmost Savagery about... Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Joe's a friend of mine. I went with him to Peleliu in 1999. Um, but he and I talked about the Pacific several times after it came out. And again, not to make the show all about the, the miniseries, not that that's a bad thing, but you know, we were talking. I got, about, I got my my travel pillow shirt on. I got my. I saw that. I yeah. saw that. <laughs> um, but I asked you, I like, okay, Joe, what were your thoughts on it? How'd you feel about it? And he said, and he liked it. But specifically, I, what really sticks out of my mind was him talking about Barcelona's fight there in, in part two. And he said, I I think that was as well represented as I've ever seen it, hands down. Yeah, because when you watch that, it's not the heroic comic book version where he's running around barefoot. He's doing 
realistic things. He's cleaning a jam out of gun. He's making the guys are shooting. And what I want to ask Brian, or maybe Henry knows this, I don't know the nomenclature of the machine gun that well. For people trying to figure this out with the amount of ammunition you said he expended, how many rounds does a belt hold on the uh, the water-cooled 19, what is it, 1907? The brown, 1917. The yeah, 1917. 250, 250 rounds. So think about that, 250 rounds. Okay. And obviously he's, well, he's well, uh, he's an expert with this gun, but you still have to change that belt. There's still time in there. Just think about how many times he had to change those belts on those guns to expend mm-hmm. that many rounds. And right. when you're when you're doing that, you're hoping your gunner assistant's laying down some fire with his M1 to give you cover. But that's still an amount of time that that machine gun nest, which everybody on the other side is aiming at, because the machine gun nests are what you try to take out first. Absolutely, and every man. time you're ta- changing that belt, that's you're at your most, you know, vulnerable. vulnerable. Yeah. And just that in and of itself is just tremendous. Doing it in the dark and it's everything is wet and you're sweaty and your <laughs> your adrenaline's pumping. And you're laying in a foxhole with hot brass all over you because that stuff's just expending oh. all over you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's just dumping all over the place. And, and uh, again, you know, just keeping those guns running. There's also there's um, uh, head spacing that you have to adjust for because w- w- the, when he went to the one gun, he says that it had – um, it ha- he needed to extract a broken shell out of it. And that is completely indicative of the gun not being headspace correctly. So what's happening is, is that gun, it's actually, it's stripping out around out of the belt and it's kind of sliding it down into the barrel. And that it's, the barrel is actually screwed into what's called a barrel extension. And, it, and they have to set it just right. So it kind of slides into that barrel. And if it's off, what will happen is upon firing or extraction, it'll, it'll snap. So it'll actually extract half of it wow. and then the other half stays in and it won't and allow stove the pipe. So they actually portray that really well where he's underneath. Yeah. He's, he's taking a timing gauge and he's trying to get that, that piece to flick it out of there. And once he does that, then the gun's back up and running. And he's doing this in the dark. It's not like they got big mag lights. Maybe at best somebody's yeah, got yeah, one of those. Yeah, he's got a headlamp on. And, yeah. and, uh, maybe you know, at he's best on his back and, somebody's uh, got a Zippo maybe if he's lucky. But other than that, yeah, he's doing it in, a, in extreme dark. The one thing he said he was terrified of the most was the dynamite. The Japanese used from from my research and 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 the Japanese, they were utilizing their Bangalore torpedoes. And for those that have seen Saving Private Ryan, there's that scene right. where they're bringing up those 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 pole charges. Bring up some Bangalores. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and they're trying to they're trying to blow holes in the barbed wire, and the Japanese are trying to do the same thing. But what they started doing was they were actually taking the TNT charges, lighting them, and then throwing them over to try to hit the machine gun positions. And Bazalone just said that concussion. He said that was the thing that really jarred him the most. Uh, you know, during that action was just that TNT going off constantly, and he would see. Well, the and also, wasn't it pretty common for like the first Japanese through the board to just throw themselves on it so their comrades could just scamper up over them? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're I don't know that that happened there, but yeah, I, I mean. <laughs> They were, I mean, Japanese were pretty fanatical throughout the entirety of the war. But the, the, what I always, I always give credit to the First Marine Division during that battle in particular because they're really facing the A team. I mean, they they are facing the best of the best, both at sea, land, and air. Um, you're talking Absolutely. highly qualified pilots. Their navy is just on point uh, in the night fighting uh, arena, and. Um, you know, you know, it's again it, what they're what they're doing, but it's their tactics that's holding them back. Bazalone, in his own account, says they're a very rugged soldier. They're very tough, but he's like their tactics seem kind of stupid. Mm-hmm. It, you know, he's just like they just keep coming into this. Where after August and September, you think there'd be a lessons learned to go. Maybe let's not do this. You know, maybe let's try to find something else. And to so, that. And to that generation of Marines and soldiers, keep in mind, their grandfathers fought in the Civil War. So to them, I'm sure a handful of them probably sitting there in their foxholes watching the Japanese run at them thinking this is very, very reminiscent of Civil War and Revolutionary War tactics where we're all just standing in a field running at each other. We've moved past this for a reason. Holy shit, my grandfather was right. They do just charge at you. you know? and, and crazy thing is we know that... Um, Carlson, 
went over and you know helped worked with the Chinese army and all that, right? Gung Ho. Yeah, and so in Gung Ho, it's interesting how Henry was talking about the the first Japanese soldier would land on the barbed wire. Carlson taught his guys to do the same thing. And I almost wonder if maybe they, he got that tactic from watching the, the Chinese army. But yeah, and then Gun Hunger, you'll see them. And um, they actually talk about, I think I saw another training video where they show that they fall and they, they kind of fall and do it in a way that produces the least amount of puncture on them. But yeah, they were just the first person falling the bob wire, make an opening when you don't have time to go up there with your snippers and cut it open. Just first guy takes the hit and everybody else just <laughs> runs over him. To, to you know, to underscore what Brian was talking about, I mean, early on, I mean, it, it was so touch and go for us at Guadalcanal, and I mean, wasn't wasn't Vandegrift actually? He was told you were authorized to surrender if worse comes to worse. And I mean, yeah. was that before the Getgi Patrol or after? It would have had to have been before because after the Getgi Patrol, it was, there was all, no surrender. Yeah. Well, the the Getgi Patrol. The, the weird thing about that is, is that the, that should have never happened. Right. The Key Patrol was arrogance for the American part because what's happening is, is Getty, everybody wants to make a name for themselves at that point. Um, they hear that these Japanese want to surrender at the mouth of the Metanikau. Um, the, the operations people and the fifth Marines are coming back and, and, they're kind of strolling in camp going, wait a minute, the, the you know, intelligence wants to take a patrol down there. They're like, that is a hornet's nest yeah. down there at the Botanica. We just got back there from there. And, and those guys are, they want to brawl. They don't want to surrender. And, you know, Getki goes, obviously, all but, you know, four people uh, are, are massacred uh, to this the day. The sabers flashing in the sun. Yeah, you see it in, in Guadalcanal Diary. Um, and, uh, to this day, uh, most, those are still, um, those Marines are still MIA, including Gecki himself. Um, I don't think there's a, in, in my opinion of being there. And, um, I, I, I've been there, uh, when there have been recovery efforts, uh, really? for, for some of the bodies on the Island. And, um, to our knowledge, either they, they were either washed out to sea or eaten by crocodiles, the remains, um, they, there's a story that they say that. Well, they're never seen again after that. But actually, um, L-35 and um, some of the 5th Marine patrols that are coming through there on their way to the Metanikau see the bodies in shallow graves. Um, and and they, 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 But they just can't. Their mission isn't to bring them back. It's that they're going for, for other operating uh, purposes. Um, but by the time we're able to kind of get our bearings and thoughts and Oh yeah, we got those guys buried there. More than likely, they've been they've been probably you know eaten because crocodiles are very much a. There's still an issue on the island. Uh, we wow. actually had some encounters, and I I believe uh, in in Robert Lecky's book, um, he he talks about after the Battle of Alligator Creek, where he swims out and he takes the binoculars uh, from the Japanese officer and he swims back to shore all proud, and I think he has a knife in his mouth and references like being a pirate, and then. His buddies are, are looking through the binos and they're going, "Hey, look! There's that guy you were just out." And the crocodiles are really apart. And yeah, because like, like, geez, I was just out there. Because in helmet for my pillow, he talks. The first night there, they see a V shape going down, and they don't know what it is. It wasn't until yeah. after the battle that they re- realize they're crocodiles. Which, by the way, tonight out on the kayak was the first time I have come across an eight foot alligator in a canal, less than thirty yards from where we were fishing so we promptly paddled the other way but um i digress <laughs> i just gotta get this out there because i know i'll get an email or a, a message i think when we we're talking about john basler and i was talking about changing belts i wasn't thinking of the timeline i think i may have said he may have hoped maybe his machine gunner was using his m1 it would have been a 1903 which to henry's point goes to show that when we land on guadalcanal we were still using some old equipment um yeah m ones haven't been issued yet um, reading the Battle for Guadalcanal and Guadalcanal Diaries, we know that before we even landed there, um, we had very little information, very little maps. Um, I know they were talking to plantation workers who used to be there, uh, sailors, people used to work on the um, coconut, all that stuff, just to get any minute amount of information. And not to mention that 
we tried to push back the landings as far as we could. We got a week out of the deal because all of our guys. <laughs> it's who, a week. They're like, we'll give it okay. We'll push it back from the first to the seventh. To the seventh. <laughs> because all of our guys have been sitting on transport ships in in areas where maybe twenty five of them can do some calisthenics for fifteen minutes at a time, and so and not to mention so just you got guys who went through training went through more training and then went to australia and someone went to new zealand and now they're sitting on ships for two weeks you know it's kind of like taking somebody and saying okay eat the junk food sit on your ass and then three or four weeks from now you're going to go run a marathon good luck yeah <laughs> so really just the yeah. the hardships that those guys went through just before even getting a combat is just insane their, their maps were all wrong as a matter of fact they're 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 set up in a the main divisional command. They're planning this out of a hotel room in New Zealand. And a few guys from the hotel bar mistakenly walk into the planning room. And Hi guys. Uh, they, 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 they walk right in and there's all these maps of the invasion that they're drawing up. And these guys are like, and, and nobody was in the room. Yeah. And all of a sudden the officers <laughs> walk in and they're like, who the hell are these guys? And they're just all drunk up and they're like, Oh, sorry. We went in the wrong room. And they're like, get out get out get out and by the way shut up (laughs) yeah and 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 again it's the 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 planning that's 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 taking place you know iwo jima okinawa i mean you're we're everything is planned to the t i mean the support structure the infrastructure guadalcanal there is just none of that i mean they 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 dub it i mean it's operation shoestring i mean it's just yeah they're planning on the fly. Vandergriff's like, okay, I got half my division in Samoa. I got some here. Um, you, you know, so so it's really a miracle, um, you know, what's happening. And, and all throughout the battle. I mean, there there's stories of – there's actually there, – there's, there's a story um, where they were they, – they, the torpedo bombers were all down at the time. Um, uh, I, I can't think of the guy's uh, name. It was, I think it was Geiger's personal pilot. He came in with a Catalina. Yes. And, um, Hand grenades. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so he flies in. So he's coming from Espiritu Santo and he's flying back anything he could fit into the plane. And he says, Hey, throw a couple torpedoes into the, into the Catalina. And so he, he lands. Jack Cram. Wasn't it Jack Cram? Yes. Yes. That's it. And, and uh, he says, Hey, I got torpedoes for you guys. And they said, well, that's fine, but we just sent all the torpedo pilots on the front line. We gave them rifles because none of the none of the planes are, are flyable. So he's like, ah, crap. So they said, well, hey, we can rig the torpedoes on the Catalina, and you can drop you can drop a torpedo from the Catalina. And and so they they rig up the Catalina, which if 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 anybody just look up a PBY Catalina, what it looks like, it's a flying boat. And there he's like I, i've never done torpedo bombing and the, there's a guy in the jeep on the way to the to the plane and he goes my brothers are torpedo bomber he goes i'll tell you all you need to know yeah. <laughs> and so he's getting his lesson in the jeep ride to the third plane. hand and 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 he ends up dropping a, a, a torpedo on a, on a jet so it's like the pilots are on the front line you got the pby catalina guy rigging up torpedoes to drop from the plane it was Hey, can I read? Are you guys familiar with this book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is my dad's copy of this. And then I want to just augment what what Brian's talking about. Hold on real quick before you do. Just on the subject of Catalina, for those of you listening at home and you're in your 40s, just think of the plane that they used in the cartoon Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, and it looks just like (laughs) that one. Yeah. But go ahead, Henry. I had to get that joke up. Oh, yeah. Uh, can you see? I don't know if you can see that, but yeah. Sid Phillips, that's his handwriting. Okay. My dad gave him this book because you know, everybody, you know how it is. All the guys got these books pursuant to whatever division they were in. Well, you know, my dad and Sid each got one. My dad took his copy, gave it to Sid. Sid wrote his notes on Guadalcanal, Cape Gloucester. And then my dad wrote his notes on all his stuff. And then, and likewise, Sid gave Dad his. But right here, you talk about the planes coming in, and, and Brian is as Je- as Don knows. Jeff and I are huge World War II aviation aficionados. But uh, as the planes came in, the men cheered and threw their helmets into the air. Sid wrote a little arrow that says "Hi" into the air. I actually saw tears of joy running down the cheeks of some of my youngsters. Wrote a regimental commander. 
And then Sid wrote in here, pilots and tail gunners would wave to us, banking low around the field. Yeah, here's another quote. The troops yelled, let the bastards try to bomb us now. Yep. But can you imagine, I mean, the rush, seeing those Wildcats and SBDs coming in, when you've been on at, at the, you know, the pointy end of the spear, so to speak, with shoestring resources. Not to mention the George S. Elliott had been sunk with all of your stuff. And so yeah. now your resupplies gone. The Navy had pulled out. Right. So now you're living and fighting with what landed on the beach and whatever food you can scrounge up from Japanese camps or whatever may be left on the beach. Absolutely. You, you, uh, you talk about, uh, I, I, I've always wanted to, to tell a story. I don't know if you've, obviously you wouldn't have, have heard this story, but the, I, I have a great Sid Phillips story. And, and this actually happened at the Reading Air Show. Oh, I don't know. This was probably... Uh, probably like eight or nine years ago, and 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 Sid was was there with the uh, with the Valor Studios people, right? And, yeah, and, and we he was there with his family and 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 his sister Catherine, and and so he wanted to see an eighty-one millimeter mortar, and I said, I'm a huge mortar nut, and um, I I said, hop in the jeep. I said, let's go. So I take him I take him to to the camp. We show him, uh, you know, the 81 millimeter. He starts talking about stories, and a crowd starts gathering. And um, we, uh, a, a, a crowd, and, and there's this young couple, and they ask him, they said, Sid, question, what are your feelings now on the dropping of the atomic bomb? And I'm like, really? Really? Like, that's Seriously. what you're going to with, you know, it's like kind of a nice, joyous occasion. You have this veteran telling his stories and his memories pointing out stories of the mortar and that's the question you come with and and Sid looks at him and, and he's standing right next to me and he goes he goes well he's like looking back on it now he goes I guess I have a few regrets and and I, I kind of look at him and he goes my biggest regret is I wasn't on the Enola Gay to pull that lever myself <laughs> and, and everybody goes goes crazy and then he leans over to me and he goes hey don't tell anybody but the favorite tractor on my farm is a Japanese tractor She's like, just keep that between you and me. And, <laughs> hey, to the victor goes the spoils. I got a Volkswagen and a Tundra. So, hey, you know, to the victors goes the spoils. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's get into Baz Lone's history a little bit. We know he served time in the Army. Let's get into that a little bit and then progress into, you know, his contributions and what led up to, you know, we, we – spoke about it briefly, but let's just give the um, Cliff Notes versions for people who are listening who aren't as well-versed in the topic as the three of us. So so Baz alone uh, joins the Army in 1936, so he spends time in the Philippines. Uh, he gets out of the Army in 1939, and um, just there's obviously a sense that something something's brewing. You know, 1939, obviously, there, there's, there's stuff already kind of kicking off. Uh, between the Japanese and the Chinese, you have the Marco Polo Bridge incident, uh, which a lot of historians, uh, really, that's the official date uh, of World War II really kicking off. Most everybody, you know, goes to the September 1st of 1939. Um, so so John Bazelon knows that, you know, there's going to be probably a, a huge fight coming up. Wants to go in, wants to be the toughest, wants to be the best. Um, and joins in the, the Marine Corps in 1940. Um, a fun piece of trivia fact that a lot of people really don't know is that John Bazelon never went to Paris Island boot camp. Um, he never went through Marine Corps boot camp. Uh, so he, uh, I've actually ruined a few of my friends that have, you know, Marines, you, have, uh, you know, career Marines, and they like, holy crap, you know, it's like the time we're at Paris Island, we always say, you know, like through these, through these doors have come some of the great Marines and I'll rattle off names like John Basilo. And I'm like, yeah, he never, he never was there. <laughs> this, uh, I said, uh, the, the, the Marine Corps was essentially like, look, we want you to be a machine gunner. It's the same machine gun. You got, you got experience. We need NCOs and uh, you're going to go right into the fleet. And uh, he actually gets assigned to the fifth Marines uh, out of the gate. And then later on, he's transferred to the seventh Marines. And um, from there, he just starts training and, and um, you know, with uh, uh, machine guns and is somebody that has 
some experience uh, uh, with with uh, machine guns and uh, is an expert. And obviously, you know, once the uh, first Marine Division is formed, uh, he's part of that, and you know, that's uh, he starts his journey uh, along with you know the first Marine Regiment, third Marine Regiment, fifth Marine uh, Regiment, seventh Marine, eleventh Marines. Um, to to uh, New Zealand and, and Guadalcanal because a, lo a lot of people think that um, you know there's this Europe first Europe first mentality we're going to wait on the Pacific um, that's you hear a lot of that in, in like TV shows now and books and and everything but if you really dig into it we were we were mightily concerned with the Japanese because people were coming back Admiral Fletcher's coming back going. These guys are violent, and and they have now they've taken out us, they've taken out the British, they've taken out the French, they've taken out the Netherlands, the, the Dutch. They're like, they are for real, and and it, if they keep expanding, uh, we're 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 gonna we're gonna be in some real real uh, serious issues here, and um, you know so that's really what Guadalcanal is, you know they're like, hey, they're now building an airfield that could mm -hmm. potentially sever, um, Australia. Uh, lifeline to australia originally our original plans were we were going to use australia kind of how we used england in europe right um that we were going to stage everything there and we're like if that gets cut off uh we're going to be sol and um so that's really why guadalcanal is uh and the japanese really aren't on guadalcanal that long they actually um they take it in uh, may of 1942 so they take tulagi uh which tulagi is about 20 miles away um, that's the the British uh, really own the the Solomon Island territories, and uh, they take it in May. And actually, part of the reason why the Battle of Coral Sea happens is is because we hear that the Japanese take Tulagi, and a, a detachment of fighters are sent out to just go bomb them, and and the Japanese aren't stupid and they're going, wait a minute, those are carrier based planes. There's got to be carriers around here. So let's start sending people out. And that's really what kind of kicks off the Battle of Coral Sea. And then they start building the uh, the, the battle, or they, they start building up the airfield on Guadalcanal. And actually, Guadalcanal is not even in a lot of the actual battle plans early on. The actual code um, and, and the, the orders within the operations are Tulagi and adjacent areas. Yeah, I uh, think Tulagi the is the prize. Um, and then we realized early on that Guadalcanal is the prize, uh, not, not Tulagi. And as said before, the Navy built the airstrip without the Japanese Army even knowing. And in the book I was reading, the Japanese Army even considered it as the insignificant little island of Guadalcanal until they discovered that the airstrip was being built. But you were just saying that they didn't really land there until May, which is another thing that goes to lead to our benefit. We know later on that Tarawa, Peleliu, Okinawa, the battle was so hard because they had spent so much time before we got there reinforcing everything. Could you imagine how much more severe the Battle of Guadalcanal would have been if they had been there for a year? Two, oh, a year oh, and a yeah, half? Yeah. But if the fact that they only had big... three months to for try to fortify it was another kind of happenstance in history to help us at least gain that early foothold, especially considering, as we were saying early, the whole Operation Watchtower was kind of just thrown against the planning board and let's see what sticks you know let's get mccain to try to run, scrape up some airplanes um let's get some guys out there um let's try to send some naval strikes onto it before we land but the whole thing was just kind of thrown together post haste because of the not to steal a word for the eto but from the blitzkrieg of how fast japan was moving through these islands and taking up stuff and as you were just saying we have to stop them before they got to australia and new zealand yeah port worsby yeah and to the fact that once again when i say throwing up the wall and stick we didn't even have time to combat load our ships so when they got to new zealand and yep. new zealand dock workers like we're not working that hard we're going on strike and the Marines like, no worries. We got guys on the ship. We ran that same equipment back there. So get the hell off the, <laughs> the docks. We'll take care oh, yeah. of it. And it's so there, insane. And it's raining. It's cold. The There's, famous story of the the cornmeal or the cornflakes corn mushed on the on the. Pier. Oh yeah, they're just rolling it down a the bay. They're just like they're like, hey, we got a combat load this ship, and the Marines are like, oh, I don't. What the hell's a combat load? You know, they're like, just throw I it just, on. They're loading up. Lewis guns. You know, I just learned like, hey, what a unit a of fire gun. was last week. You know, Brian, I was right. telling Henry this a few weeks ago, long before I did the podcast, I was out on a computer job in Fort Myers beach. And in front of an ice cream place, there was a gentleman sitting in the passenger seat of the 
car, AC running. His daughter was inside buying ice cream, and he had a first Marine Division hat on. And so I asked him when he served, and he basically said early 42 till like 44. And kind of like you were saying with Sid Phillips, okay, here's my chance to ask this guy a question. And so I just said, oh, so were you in New Zealand for the the uh, union worker strike? And his eyes lit up because I'm sure through his entire life, people want to hear, oh, how many Japs did you kill? Or where did you? And, and me, I'm talking, and me and this guy just sat there for 15 minutes talking about him working the union doc because here's a part of history that he lived through that at this point wasn't traumatic. And the fact that some random 35 year old in Florida knew about it, it, he, his eyes just lit up and we just sat there and talked about the union worker strike for like 15, 20 minutes till his daughter came out with the ice cream. And they took off. I so wish I had the podcast back then, but to me, I, it's, I just got the big thrill out of, cause I know just this guy's probably been inundated with the worst questions you could ask him. And, and that, Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, those are the things that those guys, you know, really, you know, they, they latch on to, and that's, you know, and obviously to want to talk about, you know, sometimes like maybe some of the more lighthearted, non-combative, you know, stories and, and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, there, there are some Marines, uh, out there that, and, and airborne vets that I've met over the years. Uh, my, my wife and I used to host a spaghetti dinner, uh, every month. Uh, we used to live in Erie, Pennsylvania. And, and Erie, Pennsylvania was just kind of like airborne row. Mm-hmm. And, and so we would have 82nd and 101st vets uh, to our house for spaghetti dinner. And and my wife at the time, her grandfather served in the Sixth Armor. And she grew up going to reunions and things like that. And I'm like, this is a little bit different of a crowd. And I said, it may get a little hectic. And um, they had no problems talking about, you know, certain things. And then arguments would ensue where we would have to potentially pick up knives off the off the table you know it was like the reason you were in i companies stood for idiot you know and that's why you were there and 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 go back and forth so you know but there's some vets that you know that 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 they prefer to you know talk about some of the lighthearted stuff and you know some of the other things that the nuances of you know military life back then but uh you know i i would like to you know basalone i think um I, i don't know i said he seems like the type that would have you know, I think he probably enjoyed what he did. Um, and I'm sure he, you know, when the early reports and when he was on that USO show tour, I'm sure when he's reading the newspapers of his quote unquote exploits, I'm sure he would probably be the first one to roll his eyes and be like, this is insane. But let's get to that real quick. Cause we don't want to end the episode without getting into that. So he, he got his, his medal of honor. They sent him home. He went on the USO tour how long was he on that tour before he decided to go back and uh train guys on the machine guns um you know i'm i'm unsure of the timeline you know of that because goes back in 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 43 because he's notified in may of 43 that he's going to get the word and 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 this is another thing but to his own to his own words he's actually when when he's told that he's going to get the medal of honor he thinks it's for an action that he does in november they ask him they said what is your best memory your most fondest memory of guadalcanal and he said it would have to be the november actions like near gavaga creek and 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 when they were hunting japanese in the jungle for 18 straight days and and he thinks the medal of honor is actually for an action that he that that took place in november and they're like no it's for the october battle and he's like oh okay you know it didn't even like register in his head that it was like that big of a deal you know for him and um, so, so then, you know, he's notified in May, he gets awarded in Australia, he's sent back. Um, I, I, I don't know the, the, the timeline of when he goes from the USO tour, you know, back in and, and um, into the, uh, to the six Marines and, and uh, you know, starts training and then you know, ultimately uh, landing uh, on uh, Iwo Jima. Uh, and then, you know, killed uh, during the, the initial uh, in the assault. So, um, and again, he, he's awarded the Navy Cross for his actions um, for the Battle of, of, uh, of Iwo Jima. So he, he's, um, you know, again, a, a household name during the war, even to this day, that if you, if you bring him up, you know, people, people know the name. And um, he, he has earned everything, I mean, giving his life uh, in service to his country. Um, and, you know, for the Marine Corps, which he, which he loved. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, um, 
talking about the story and that's why like i i feel i feel bad sometimes when, when you know we we talk about these you get kind of the nerd sure. circle that we talk about certain things where you know and sometimes some people kind of look at it almost disrespectfully like you know we're disrespecting them in some way and it's just really trying to separate that fact and fiction and sometimes the the facts are even more amazing than these these mm -hmm. tall tales that that get uh you know, bred out of these stories. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, again, just, you know, for, for me, the, the battle has always held a special place in my heart and, and some of these guys that really made it happen because if, if not, it, it turns into a much different story. For, for the well, we mentioned it a few weeks ago. Um, the fact that Lena, got married and became a widow at 33 being a 43 year old guy. I know how young 33 is and to never remarry to me is just one. It obviously shows the love and passion she had for John, but it's, it's almost in and of itself a tragedy because you wonder how much on life did she miss out on to go from 33 up until the age she passed away, not creating a new family and perhaps, you know, extending a bloodline. It's just that, that in and of itself is a tragedy too. So it's almost like, I don't want to say a wasted life, but you're not living up to your full potential. So it's almost like when he did pass, he kind of took half her life with him. And she was just so devastated and heartbroken that she just never remarried, never formed a family. And that in and of itself kind of adds to the tragedy. At least I feel that way when I read it into it. That, that time period is such a unique and, and I and I think it probably sticks with with a lot of, of men, whether it was you know men and women throughout the World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Mm -hmm. But to me, you know, growing up, hearing the stories from from my from my family, what it meant to them. Um, my my uh, my wife's grandfather he served in the Sixth Armored Division. When he was going, my my father-in-law was going to go get married. He said. He goes, Dad, I'm getting married, and gave him the date. And and you know, my my wife's grandfather said, Well, I won't be there. And my father was like, What are you talking about? And and he goes, Well, that's Company B reunion. And uh, and and he said, You got it. And they had to reschedule their wedding for his unit's reunion. And 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 when he when he passed, one of his his battle buddies. Uh, was just crying over his coffin and he wasn't there when when my when my uh when my my wife's grandfather was wounded and he was crying and and and, and he was just saying he goes i wasn't there for you milt i wasn't there for you milt i wasn't there for you milt and i told my sister-in-law i said that man probably knows more about your grandpa than than your grandma ever did mm -hmm. and, and and i said this this time period and again you know henry to, to your, you know the stories that you were telling uh the other day on that show about about your dad um you know when right. when your mom said you know like you know there's there's your mom there's your dad there there's there's ak ak you know it's just like this this time period and and these people that live through it it's it's such a unique time period and it stayed with them throughout mm -hmm. their the entirety of their lives and it meant so much to them as miserable as it may have been and for the good or for bad i mean it's just it's it's just it's just part of their can DNA. I, can i share a little quick story yeah, yeah. because you brought that up um to your to your point of the mindset um and i've heard my mom tell this story <clears throat> but it wasn't that long after they were married they were in the car going somewhere. This probably would have been around Auburn University, you know, early 1950s. My dad would have been in graduate school. And they're driving down the street, and there was, there was a squirrel in the middle of the street that had been run over. And it's eviscerated and bloody and mangled. And, you know, they just drive by. And my mom's like, oh, look at that poor squirrel. And she said my dad was just kind of, you know, arm on the steering wheel looking out the window. And he, she said he kind of looked at her and said, I had friends that looked worse than that. And, and that something in that just, it kind of, you know, it grabbed her. She's like, Jesus Christ. I, I guess I never really thought about it because, you know, it's not like my dad talked about, you know, just a few years ago, I was going through Peleliu and Okinawa, but to your point, it just, it informed their entire thought process 
for the rest of their lives. Yep. Yeah, yeah it's it's uh, you know you you just can't even fathom it. Like you said, like to sit there and go, like, what do you mean? Like you never remarried, you never you never did this. But it's just like in her mind, it's just this was this, you know, you're you're throwing this generation of of kids into the greatest cataclysm in human history and they're like uh it's up to you to essentially you know for lack of a better term and not trying to be cliche about it but it's like you guys get you guys are responsible for like maintaining world order uh and you're 18 (laughs) you can't get your 18 year olds to move out of your house nowadays let alone do things around the house and mow the grass without giving you grief uh it's up to you guys to save world and you know and as you're saying not only that, but things were different back then. Um, it was quite common, and it would be kind of frowned upon, even though we're supposed to be this new world society where we don't judge. But it was, you know, quite common for if a brother were to die and the other brother were single, that he would step in, marry the widow, take care of the family, and move on. And and I mean that happens even even into the early mid nineties when my uncle passed away. Four or five years later, my aunt ended up marrying his brother just because that was the way it was supposed to be. And, and you know, to modern day people, that seems really weird, but that was quite common back then. And so, you know, kind of like you're saying, her not remarrying, to me, as I said, it seems tragic, but I'm looking at it from the 2021 perspective, not the 1944, 1945 perspective. Right. Things were a lot different. And, and, it, and I'm sure, Henry, you run into this, and Brian, you probably do too from your research. When I try to read some of these news articles to record them for the podcast, there's just minor, minute lingo and even grammar differences between 1944 and 20, 1997 when I was going to school or 20, now that it, I have to like reread it like four or five times before I can regurgitate it because the, their way of writing things, even just basic writing a newspaper article is completely different in the way we do things right. now, let mm-hmm. alone their their way of life and religion. And so just, right. just something as basic as that, or if you ever, I'm sure we all, I got a few of them here. You every once in a while, you're walking through an antique store, you'll find old time or an old life magazine from 1942. And you're reading through the advertisements or the letter to the editor. And just the, the way they write was just so much different back then. Yeah. And even going further, further back, I mean, uh, a, a good friend of mine, Aaron Conklin, he's, uh, he's, uh, got this uh they they reprinted it but it was like stars and stripes um but during world war one and there was actually like they had this souvenir bound thing of all of the issues that were issued out during the, the first world war and he had a copy of this and and uh i was just reading through some of the articles and this was from the first world war and like you said it was like wow it's, you know the, the phrases the terminology and everything like that you're going wow they talk like that you know and uh even even you know you, you see on the you know reels and things that 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 high that high pitched mid Atlantic mm-hmm. voice you know yeah. and that was actually like a real thing mm-hmm. uh, it was a vernacular that was that was used back then and people had that had that accent and and uh, so it is sometimes you gotta you gotta look through certain lenses and again talking about the Battle of Guadalcanal people when they when they hear it I say you know I always say you gotta look through this through the lens of 1942. Not through the wind, 1944 or 1945. There's no question that we're going to take Iwo Jima. There's no question that we're going to take Okinawa. It's just going to be how much. What is it going to cost? You know, we're not we're not going to pull back from this. Um, and and that's you know again you you in certain things you got you can't look through it through the lens of you know now 2021 of uh, really with, with with anything you have to kind of remove yourself and and kind of put yourself into into that that time frame uh to to really understand it to go why the heck would they be doing this or why are they doing that so absolutely before we wrap it up i gotta get the plugs out of the way this episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast has been brought to you by our friends at at computers at computers has been providing it solutions since 2004 and even if you don't live in southwest florida they can help you via their website remotely as long as you have working internet of course so give them a call at 239-283-1120 or head over to act-capecoral.com and hit the contact us link. And if you do live in Southwest Florida and need computer repair, laptop repair, network expansion, server migrations, what have you, anything technical related, give them a call at 239-283-1120 or head over to act-computers, I'm sorry, act-capecoral.com. And while you're on the internet, 
please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and uh, click on that orange Patreon link. That helps to go to support the show and help us pay for the little overhead we have here. And I want to thank everybody who is currently a Patreon member. And while you're there, also, please click on the link, go to our YouTube channel, and subscribe and help us get the listenership up there. Henry, do you have anything you want to plug or get out there to the awareness to yeah, the audience? Actually, this is perfect with Brian being here quickly. I will say the We Happy Few 506 episode will be the next one is uh, October 9th. Um, I, I will not be part of it. My family and I will be on vacation, but it, it is going to focus on the Barcelona story. Uh, it's going to have, of course, the same crew that was there, but it's also going to have Josh Bitten, who played J.P. Morgan. Um, and I really enjoyed talking to him a couple of weeks ago in a Zoom meeting that we did. But uh, it's the next episode. It will be live and he's going to focus on the Barcelona story. Fantastic. So, uh, I'll be on the episode after that, I guess, because I'll be back from being out of town. But uh, but that will be October 9th. Brian, do you have any plugs or where can people go to find out more about you or any of the, the uh, things you want to support or get out there? Um. No, I, well, I didn't know if you had any a, living history groups you wanted to promote or anything like that. Any events coming up? No, I mean the, the only the only really two big events that, that I do obviously are the Reading Air Show um, that takes place in, in Reading, Pennsylvania. It's a World War II weekend. Happens uh, the first weekend in June. Uh, if you're ever in that uh, in that area, it is well worth the time uh, to visit it. Uh, typically, it sees you know the 50,000 people. You could see B-29s in the air, B-17s, mm. uh, all kind of rare aircraft. How many Corsair? Uh, there, I mean, it is just, it's 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 crazy because, like, we're obviously, we're doing our, our Pacific-themed uh, encampment, and we're right at the um, mm. um, the entrance of the taxiway. So there's many, uh, many mornings where I get the authentic wake-up where I'm in my tent, and, and Corsairs are, are revving up, and it's actually blowing the flaps of the tent and we're getting the exhaust through through the tent and you know you're waking up you're like oh man the planes are you know you're sitting there going like that's yeah, a good feel and uh, and then the other the other big event uh, that that we do uh every year is uh d-day conneaut it's uh it's the largest uh, d-day reenactment um in the united states um, it's in conneaut ohio and um it's uh again a just a a very very large scale event um again sees uh, well over, you know, I think it's 2,500 reenactors. There's pyrotechnics, um, you know, landing craft, uh, uh, living histories throughout, and it's 30,000, 40,000 people that, that attend to that. So those are two big events. And I, I always recommend to people, again, it's in northern Ohio on Lake Erie. Um, and uh, always, always recommend that to people. But um, as a Columbus again, boy, that's one that I really need to get up to. You know, it's funny. I was at um, either either Sun and Fun or another air show a few years back. And by the way, I forgot to mention this last week. Facebook shared to me a picture of my first reenactment. I've been uh, doing living history for nine years now, and uh, which blows my mind. But back to my point is, it's it's crazy to wake up in your tent. And then you open a flaps and you see as the sun's coming up a World War II era aircraft sitting at the open flaps of your tent. And um, it definitely brings it in. But hey, I'm gonna that's gonna wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. I'm Don Abernathy, and for Henry Sledge and Brian Dimitrovich, thank you guys for hanging out with us. Jeff Cop said we'll be back on the next episode. And as always, thank you guys so much. And please like and share us with a friend. Let's get those numbers up and share our history with everybody else. Henry, thank you. Brian, thank you. And we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for having me.